ever given. Why do I say this? Because it's obvious. I mean, if you want to hear somebody teach about God and the kingdom of heaven, who else would you want to do that except for the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ? I mean, he is by far the most superior sermon giver ever. And so we're analyzing the greatest sermon ever, really, the Sermon on the Mount, given not like little parables. I don't believe that. I think that does a great disservice because he actually has a flow. And his flow is very thorough, very logical. And, and for those who have studied hermeneutics and the, the study of, of studying the, the Word of God and whatnot and applying it to life and whatnot, it, it, it fits. It fits a nice flow. And so we're learning with that. And he comes off just literally blowing people's socks off, saying that the unblessed people are blessed and, and that they're, they're going to make a difference in the world and life. And, and, and yet, you know, but he's not breaking any rules. It's all cool. You know, he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So he's coming in just really intensely. But yet, hey, why waste time? He's the son of God. And this is going to be written in history. So let's just get right to the nitty gritty. Let's get right to what's matter. And of course, how clever is Jesus, the son of God, that he will deal with hard issues, difficult issues, uncomfortable issues, but he will do it right on and spot on. And it's intense, the stuff he's dealing with. He's dealing with culture. He's dealing with the hearts. He's dealing with minds. And, and, and the cool thing is he doesn't even stop to deal with the Pharisees just yet and deal with the, you know, the, the theor, theological squabblings that, that they would bring in. He's just like, in fact, I like what John the Baptist said because he gave the same message, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. And when the, the Pharisees showed up, you know, who were more interested in arguing theology than actually knowing about the kingdom of God, he called them, you know, a brood of vipers, you know, on, on, get on your bike, get up the road, you know. I mean, he, John was interested in dealing with genuine people. And that's common, regular people who need the touch of God in their lives. And so here we see the same thing with Jesus. You know, he goes, and what did he do? He starts his ministry by, first of all, selecting disciples, friends, people to work with, a team, a ministry team, if you will. And who are they? They're just simple guys, fishermen, you know. And he, because they're humble and they're open. They're willing to move. They're willing to move. Drop your nets. Let's go. What do they do? They drop their nets. They went. Simple as that. Sometimes it takes just a regular, simple person. To, you know, other, most of us will complicate things. But these guys didn't. Let's go. I'm following Jesus, and we're doing it today. Um, I'm sure they felt insignificant. I'm sure they felt unequipped. But they still just had that simple faith and trust that we learn about throughout the Word of God. And then moving on. You know, here he is. He's, he gets right to what really matters. Healing and dealing and it's all these, again, common regular people who are sick and messed up and screwy and ugly and fat and everything else. And he's dealing with them. He's talking to them. He's, he's, he's healing them. He's, he's ministering to them. And then now he sits up on the side of this hill so that he can be heard to, you know, by many. And he starts preaching. And he starts talking about how blessed they are. And I'm sure they've never heard that ever in their lives. <laughs> because they were poor. And they were miserable. And they were sick. The common, as we learned, common misconception at the time was if you were poor and sick and without, then you weren't blessed by God at all, but you were cursed by God. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You are blessed. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's at hand. Take it. 
And they're, of course, staring at the kingdom representative. If there ever was one, he's the chief one, Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so then he opens his mouth, and then he starts dealing with, which is, again, a good sermon would do, everyday practical life things. Here we are. We're people living in the world. How do we live in the world and be salt? How do we be salt? How do we be light? Because he did say that. He didn't say you're going to be. You can be. He says you are the salt. You are the light. Okay, but how am I salt? How am I light? And as we're finding out, it's because of your heart. It has nothing to do with what you do necessarily externally. It has to do with everything internally. It's your heart that makes you salt and your heart that makes you light. Usually your behavior kind of follows behind that. And that's kind of in review what we learned. And so we are in part two of everyday life in regular society. Uh, and we're going to be dealing with Matthew 5, 27 to 37. So 10 verses hopefully we'll deal with in the next 25 to 30 minutes. So. And just as a reminder, again, you know, we're dealing with daikaiosune, um, which is the word that um, we were dealt with Plato and Aristotle before giving Christ. They wanted to figure out what is the right kind of life. How do we live right life with virtue? integrity, justice, these kinds of terms, you know. Aristotle himself, he changed it ever so slightly, but still the same kind of theme. But Jesus is getting right to it. This is the right kind of life. And, and I kind of paraphrased the definition by saying what, is, what that is about a person that makes him or her really right or good, true inner goodness. And I think that was the case in Jesus' time. Of course, the self-righteous Pharisees thought it's the things that they knew, <laughs> the things that they thought about, the things that they were doing and not doing that made them righteous. But Jesus is going to uncover it's much deeper than that. And I think it is for our day as well. You know, what is it that makes us righteous? We all want to know. How do I become a good person? Right? How, do, how do I know I'm doing the right thing? So again, you know, in the verse um, 20, he says, uh, I tell you that unless your righteousness, and that word righteousness is daikaiosune, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Of course, he's not making it difficult or impossible to get in the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying here is a different kind of person, a different kind of way. It's a heart issue. It's faith. It's belief. It's trust. Um, and it's a deeply spiritual thing as well. Again, Romans confirms that we can't work our way into heaven because we just can't do it. We're not equipped to do that. But it's a different kind of way. And that way is answer the question, how ought I to live? How do I find this true inner goodness? Next slide. So again, in way we review, we dealt with the, the, the murder aspect, the anger aspect, which I prefer to call it, you know, because uh, to, to simplify it by saying, yeah, I, I don't kill people, so I'm all right kind of guy. And it's kind of cheap. And that's what Jesus said. That's cheap. You don't kill people, big deal. What's in your heart? Is anger in your heart? Is it consuming you? Is it thrashing you? Is it weighing you down? Anger is a cause of many problems within our society. And I don't think I need to put any references to that because I think we can all see it around ourselves every day. It gives birth to contempt. Uh, a life of unresolved anger and contempt is a life of pain and suffering. Uh, and so the kingdom kind of life that Jesus talked about, when he says, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it necessitates love. And we're already seeing this, and I'm going to kind of dwell into the love aspect a bit more today. Um, and we did talk about it again a little bit last week, and we did deal with these issues more in detail. So love for those who have been uh, burdened by anger and contempt. And so he talked about it. He goes, we see the danger. We see the problems of, of anger and contempt. And even when it mixes and, and, and it becomes you know, exercise, verbalized as you know, how you treat other people and how you speak to them by saying, he said, you fool, which would be equivalent to us using a strong, sweary word today. And that's just kind of how you talk to people by using strong, sweary words. He's like, you know, is that, is, that, is that what anger and contempt has done to you? Has it made you that kind of person? 
That's a burden. That's a weight that crushes, crushes people. And so what he says is, stop. Now you are true in your worship. You're worshiping God, you're loving God, and you're free from anger and you're free from contempt, but it comes to your attention that somebody else is being squashed by anger and contempt. What do you do? Out of love, you go and you reconcile with them. And then if you have enemies who hate you, you love them. And this kind of love, this kind of relationship is what we see in Jesus and the cross. He loves his enemies. He died for them. And this requires a heart. And this is the heart, I think, of the sermon, really. And it starts to come out at this point. Next slide, please. So one of the issues, a heart, the heart free from lust. It's very, very important. So we're going to read the next element as he moves from anger and contempt into lusts. And he's going to deal with adultery and what that means. And so in verse 27 says this, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you, your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So, what is this adultery? Now, the law says do not commit adultery, i.e. do not have sexual relationships with someone you're not married to. Or more specifically, if you are married, don't have sex with anybody that's not your husband or wife. Okay, So we all kind of know what adultery is. Don't do it. And of course, the Pharisees at the time would hear this and say, I'm all right because I don't do that. But there's something going on in their heart. And a lot of times people, I've heard it said, that the difference between actually committing adultery and lusting is opportunity. For many people, the opportunity just hasn't arisen. But they would take it if it came. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. The heart has to be there. The, what, are you, what are you convinced of? The, the fantasizing, the thinking, the imaginations, the, the looking, the wandering, all that stuff that you know what it is. <laughs> you know what it is. That stuff happens. And he goes, that's the heart of adultery. And, and I can see people all over the place hearing Jesus say this, and they're kind of going, whoa, 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 whoa. This is very difficult stuff Jesus is teaching here. Indeed it is, because he wants to deal with the heart. The heart is so easy to fall into. It's, 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 it's hard to murder, but it's easy to fall into anger. You know, it's easy to fall into contempt if we don't guard ourselves. It may, it's hard to commit adultery, because again, for many of us, the opportunity never comes. <laughs> but it's easy to lust. All you have to do is just be ready to do it and be given over to your flesh. So it's a hard issue. So Jesus is dealing with very hard issues. But again, he's dealing with how when this heart happens and this change happens and, and trust in God and the reliance on the most Holy Spirit, you know, we, we, we are delivered by it. Um, hit, hit the next slide. So here, you know, he asks us, you know, are we men and women with no eyes? You know, and that's basically what he's saying. If you're tempted, pop your eyes out. That was kind of scary looking for images of people with no eyes. I actually found a lot of them and this is the least graphic. But think about what he's saying here. It's pretty intense. To see somebody with no eyes is pretty scary. So what we decided to do is I've actually got some sterilized surgical equipment in the back. And so as a church, I think we together start booking our, no, that's not a good idea. So obviously Jesus is not really intending us to really do that. But what's he trying to say? What's he doing? You can cut your eyes out. You can cut your hands off. You can cut your feet off. You can cut your head off. But you know what? You can never change the fact that you are you. You see what I'm saying? 
You can take, take, you can take all the elements away. And you can be just a block of a person on life support, but still will still abound because you are you. Next slide. So no, we are not men with eyes, but we are men and women with a heart. And that's a problem. We have hearts. What's our hearts like, really? You know, how can we hurt ourselves and others with no eyes and no hands? We do it with our hearts, who we are. And that's when the heart, when the Greeks and the Romans, and I believe a lot of the biblical writers talk about hearts and minds and souls, it's interweaved with what Descartes would say, the I am. It's who, I'm speaking of me when I say my heart. I'm speaking of me when I'm talking about my mind. I'm speaking of me. And how do you get rid of you? Well, you have to replace it with the Spirit. And that's why Jesus says you must be born again to be born, you have to seek God's kingdom. You have to be born again because our hearts are wicked, as again, as you know, Jeremiah and Romans and all the, the Bible pretty much declares. So our hearts is what hurts us. Our hearts is what hurts other people. So we are persons, you know, that's, and, and that can never be removed. So the person needs to be changed. And so he says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And he gets right to the point. It's the heart. How do you remove a heart? You can't do that. Next slide, please. Um, I like what Job says here. Because, um, you know, Job who actually, what I like about it is, he, first of all, it's before Moses, way before Moses. And the law was given to Moses. And he's, so, so he's not going to talk about the law per se. What's Job going to deal with is the heart. Because this is a man who simply knew God without the law, without the prophets. He just simply knew God, and he simply feared and trusted in God in the most simplest way. I mean, he didn't have a Bible to turn to. He didn't have, again, the prophets or the law itself. He just knew God, and he, I believe, understood the heart of God. And so when you read verses like this, there's no doubt that we can learn from it and see the character of the kingdom living, a character of kingdom uh, of, of, of Christ, and what he's trying to preach and teach and help people understand. So it says, I made a covenant with my eyes, okay, not to look lustfully at a girl. So it's the eye, I made, the heart, the person, says I will make a covenant. So it's almost like two entities. I've got this flesh thing about me with hands that need to be cut off and eyes that need to be pulled out. But how do we do it? We do it by making a covenant. Let's make a deal, self. Let's, we're not going to go here. We're not going to look at women in this way. And we're not going to sell ourselves short by losing our intimacy, by giving it freely to anybody who walks by. For what is a, a man's lot from God above, his heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? So again, he, he sees moral integrity, rightness, and wrongness. And he goes, I want to do what's right for integrity's sake. God watches. God's here, God's with me. And how do I do this? I need to make a deal with myself. I need to make a deal. He's not making a deal with God. He's making a deal with himself. I will agree with my eyes and my hands. I won't go there. I won't do that. In verse 5, I, if I have fallen into falsehood, or my foot has hurried after deceit. So again, we see actions and words. If I've walked in falsehood, I say one thing, but I do another thing. Or my foot has hurried after deceit. Quick, his actions are... Are, are, are prone or are drawn or attracted to, you know, these wrong, and this is, speaks of lust, so this is the content, okay? He's long doing, then, you know, then he's got a reason for God to judge him, 
you know, as he says, to weigh him. But God does weigh him with, with honest scales. And he's saying, God, you know, you know I'm blameless. You know me, you see me, you know I'm blameless. I'm glad for Job. Verse 7, if my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes. You know, and that's interesting. It's, here we have the heart and the eyes here again. If my heart has been led by my eyes, you know, and I remember when we talked about like Jesus when he was tempted, we talked about the, the I want, I consume, and then now acknowledge me, you know, and, and we compare that to First John, we talked about the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, right? So here we see the lust of the eyes. You know, are we led by our eyes? Or, or do our hearts follow our eyes? Or does our eyes follow our hearts? You see the difference here? Our eyes say, I want this, I want that, I want to consume, I want to achieve, I want to conquer. It's the flesh. And that's the way of the world, as John says, and as we learned. And that's the temptation. Even from the beginning in Genesis, from the fall of humankind. The fruit, the, the sin, the disobedience looked appealing. Ooh, that looks fun. That looks delicious. I want that. And the reality is, everybody would certainly agree that sin is attractive. But it's also deceiving, it's a trap. And so, ooh, that looks all right. I kind of want that, so I'm going to go for it. But we've got to be careful not to let our hearts follow our eyes, but rather our eyes to follow our hearts. If my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman... Or if I have lurked, lurked, this is kind of creepy. If I've lurked at my neighbor's door. <laughs> Sorry, Linda, but when I read this, I thought, because you're my neighbor, you know, I was like, me kind of hanging out the front door. Hey, Linda, so what are you doing there? You're like, oh, that's creepy, man. Get out of here. I mean, but that's the picture. It's like, what a creepy little guy this is. I'm glad he wasn't this way. And I'm sure Linda and her husband's glad I'm not that way either, you know. <laughs> but that's kind of a creepy image, you know. It's like looking for trouble, you know, looking for opportunity, being a chancer. They made my wife grind another man's grain. I'm sure in Hebrew that means something, but I'm not going to go there. And may other men sleep with her. For that would have been shameful. A sin to be judged. It is. So again, remember in context, he's talking about lust. It is a fire. Lust is a fire that burns to destruction. It's dangerous. Like anger is dangerous, and it's consuming, and it's overbearing, and overwhelming, and causes a lot of problems in our society. So is lust. So, uh, next slide, please. And I kind of put this diagram here because I think this kind of puts some feet to what we're talking about here just now. And I put here entitled, you know, those who have, you know, turned love to hate. And ultimately, that's kind of what happens when we let ourselves just go and lose control. We turn love genuine. God honoring, God's blessing, love to hate um, through uncontrolled anger and contempt. Again, this is in context of what we learned already in the misappropriation of intimacy. And intimacy is an important thing because intimacy is two souls. And it's an important thing for the human soul to have another soul to be intimate with. But it's a give and take. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a give and take. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's like a big soul hug, if you will. It's coming together. And so what happens if you give that away to every person you see? Give away your intimacy. You give away your soul. And that's why it says down here, number one, that sex thoughts, desire for desire's sake, as Jesus calls it here, or lust. It's freely given away. Intimacy is not reciprocated. It's given one way. And what happens is eventually frustration will occur and resentment. 
frustration, resentment, expectations. You know, you get sick of that. You know, like uh, I'm giving my way my heart to every person I see. I'm loose with it, but yet it's not being reciprocated. That's the dangers of lust. And so you look at all the people who walk by, and you're like, "Ooh, I want." Like we learned already, I consume the way of the world, and they love me, but it's not being reciprocated. So the person's heart becomes cold and hardened. And then number two comes about, the heart gets cold and hardened, and then genuine sexual encounters. Say a man with his wife, or a woman with her husband. These genuine sexual encounters are muddled by the frustration that's birthed through lust, through this non-reciprocation and sexual frustration and resentment becomes muddled with, you know, and it turns ultimately to anger and contempt because sex equals then frustration. You know, expectations, bogus expectations, you know, which is like, I put it, which is likely due to unmet sexual fantasies, unfair expectations. And so maybe watching videos you shouldn't watch or books or magazines it, it, it puts expectations in the mind that's unfair for a relationship that is meant to be God-honored and genuine. And then what happens is love then is turned into hate. And then what's the solution? Next slide, please. Here, have a divorce. Now, isn't that our culture? And Jesus knew it, because guess what he goes right into? Divorce. And I, I apologize for the, the image of the homeless lady there, but we've got to make it culturally relevant. In our culture, a divorce is, is a small punch compared to what it was like in Jesus' time. To divorce a woman would equal usually three things, maybe four. Number one, she um, may find a, a, a family member who might take her on and she might become uh, a second-class family member who just kind of hangs about the house and helps the dishes and basically becomes a servant. Okay, Is that loving? No. Um, to send her away with a divorce would be maybe, the second option would be... Um, she would get married again, but again, she's used a car. She's used material. Who, who, who wants that? You know? uh, so again, mistreated, second-rate kind of choice. You know? I'll, I'll take you, I guess. And this is cultural, speaking here. I know this is a lot different today. We, we don't think quite this way, but this is Jesus dealing with people with broken hearts and broken minds. Third option is, is prostitution. You know, go out and sell your body to the streets, and you'll make money, and, and you can live to yourself. Not desirable. And of course, the fourth one, maybe just live on the streets and be a beggar. So to give a woman divorce is not an act of love. And Jesus is saying, you hypocrites, you're out there giving. And at this time, there's actually two different schools of how a man were to offer or to give a certificate of divorce. And the theme or the idea comes from in Deuteronomy, when, when, when out of just like, it's not a command, we'll see this later, but it's out of, in order to protect the, these people from killing each other, he, Moses reluctantly gave them this, this right or this, this option to divorce. Here, you can have this option to divorce. So you won't kill each other. But at this point, they were using it willy-nilly. And so the man would send away his wife. I'm, I'm sick of you. I'm bored of you. I'm sick of looking at you. Go away. And to protect him, the certificate would say, now you can go as a woman, but you can't return. Because you don't want to be abused by this guy by keep on using this. Well, if you don't, if you don't cook my food right, you're out of here. It was a permanent thing. It was permanent. You weren't to return. We'll see that in Jesus' words. And the second thing was this. If she were to go out and, and have to have a relationship and have to marry another guy or whatever, she had to have that certificate so she won't be killed 
I have been an adulteress. You know what I'm saying? Like if she goes starts to, to live and marry another fella, oh, you're an adulteress. I know you're married to such. No, here's my certificate of divorce. So again, it's to protect the woman and to protect the people. So it's, it's an act of love. Like it's a last resort type of thing. But Moses reluctantly gave it to the people of Israel. Next slide, please. Actually, I never even read those verses, did I? Go back. I should actually read the verses. Sorry, guys. So it says again, if it has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her the certificate I'm speaking of. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus deals with this a lot more intensely and I'm going to go into just now in, in Matthew uh, chapter 19. If, here it says here. It is, again, Jesus being tripped up by these Pharisees. The Pharisees constantly want to wind Jesus up and want to trip him up politically. They, they didn't like Jesus. They wanted to mess him up. So always craft these questions. But the thing is, Jesus gave honest answers to these questions, regardless of their intention. And one time the Pharisees said to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now that you have a little bit of cultural understanding of what it means to divorce, how in the world would Jesus say, ah, yeah, whatever, she burns the toast, she, she can't even boil water, she's so bad in the kitchen. She's, yeah, she's gotten old and she's got wrinkles, you know, get rid of her, you know? How would he say that? That's at the heart of God. So they're trying to trap him. Now, I put Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai because those are the two different camps of theory of, of what divorce was like. Hillel was basically, was the guy who says, you know what, divorce for any reason. While Shammai was a bit more upright and he, and he says, no, 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 no. Divorce is only for absolute immoral, you know, you know, um, sins and and when it's, it's you know, like adultery, for instance, like Jesus mentioned briefly earlier. So he's like, "What camp are you?" And he wants to divide politically. Jesus, so he's trying to trip him up politically. And Jesus, I would say so much would agree with Shemai, but even more because he actually deals with the heart issue of what divorce is all about. And in order to deal with what divorce is, you got to look at what marriage is and what divorce actually does to a person. And that's why he says here. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made. Okay, so it's the first thing. The creator made marriage. So it has nothing to do with what you think and what politicians think, what the court thinks and what, you know, liberal thinkers think. That has nothing to do with what marriage is. What marriage is is what God thinks. Because God is a creator. He's the author. He made it. So what does God say about marriage and divorce? He made the male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So it's not just that God created, God instituted, and God honors it, and he authenticates it, but it's an actual physical melding of persons, two becoming one flesh, not one soul, one spirit, but one flesh. You actually start to act and think and look alike even. And I've seen this in couples that I've grown up with and seen married and whatnot, start acting alike and looking alike and even smelling alike, two become literally one flesh. And that's what he's saying here. This is something that's more than just metaphysical. This is physicality. This is real. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so he's thinking, okay, now let's talk about divorce. How is it, look how destructive it is. If two become one, divorce is nothing but destruction at this point. And I think it's, we're going to induce this logically by looking at what marriage is. It's not wheely-neely. It's not just a, an easy way out because you just, you're bored and you can't be bothered. Let no one separate. No courts, no laws, no liberal thinking and no agenda-based group, whatever. Let no one separate. 
Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Okay, Jesus, then why did Moses say it's okay? Well, these are the word command, which I'm glad Jesus dealt with in his response. That's why I underlined command. Why did Moses command? It's not a commandment. And Jesus corrected them. No, Moses permitted. He didn't command nothing. He permitted. He was reluctant to give you divorce, your wives, because your hearts were hard. Again, he didn't want people killing each other. But in order to protect the lives of people, he says, if it has to happen, then I'll permit it, but under certain guidelines. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that the, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, which again agrees a little bit with, with Rabbi Shemai, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Next slide, please, Gary. <clears throat> so again, what we're talking about, before we talk about this slide, is the heart. You know what I'm saying? Love. Do you love that person? Love. Or do you love yourself? Are you caring for yourself? Are you wanting to consume? Wanting to, you know, wanting to lust? Wanting to take for yourself? That's the way of the world. It's the way of Christ. And Christ is making that very clear. So it's a hard pill to swallow for many people. And then, of course, the last little section, which is the oaths, verses, verses 33 onwards, it says, Again, you have heard that it is said to, to people long ago, do not break your oath. With oaths, of course, we're talking about promises, right? Promises. Yeah, I'll do that. Don't break it. But fulfill the Lord, the Lord's vow you have made. But I tell you, do not swear on, on uh, an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you can say, now hold on. Again, he's saying, well, first of all, how silly is it to swear? Oh, I swear to, you know, what do we say today? I swear to God. Ooh, that, that would be a big one. They wouldn't even do it back then. Or I, I swear to my mother's grave. What does that mean? Or, you know, oh, oh you know, he says, basically, you can't swear to heaven because it doesn't belong to you. You have no control over it. It's God's. You can't swear to anything on earth because it doesn't belong to you. It's God's. It's his footstool. You can't swear to Jerusalem because guess what? That's his. And even your own body, you have no control over it. You can't control when your hair turns gray or if it falls out and becomes baldy. You can't control when you, how old you are when you die. You cannot control these things. Okay? You have no control, so you can't swear over these things. So the bottom line is this. Be honest. Heart. And the next slide is going to show us how love is just straightforward. It's uncomplicated. It's simple. Say yes for yes. Say no for no. Simple as that. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jed, you got to be quiet, son. We're in no Bible study. Okay, we'll end with the next slide. <clears throat> we'll end with the next slide. And this is the last slide. And I really want to get to this slide, and we got a couple minutes. The kids are here a bit early. Remember, love is pretty much uncomplicated. And really, the heart of what he's talking about, the heart of the message, the heart of the sermon is love, really. This is, this is the kingdom way. This is the kingdom style. This is, this is love. This is what Christ is all about. And so we look at the world's way, and we look at the way of God, and we have the kingdom of heaven. The world's way is full of anger and contempt. God's kingdom is full of love, which is if someone's angry with you, you make reconciliation. If someone is your enemy, you make peace. That's what we learned. And then also, the way of the world is lust and betrayal. The way of the kingdom of God is love, which is genuine and pure. Don't give yourself away, but keep yourself for the one God has for you. And last but not least, I didn't have much time to, to, to get in depth with it, but it's pretty simple. Don't need to say much more about it. The way of the world lies, manipulations. You know, how can I gain for myself? 
you know, the whole soap opera mentality, lies, manipulations. But the way of the kingdom of heaven is love. Again, love, love, love. It's straightforward and it's honest. Let's pray.